thanks for joining the SOARcast, where we talk about drones, manned aircraft, and satellites, and how they relate to geospatial products found on the SOAR platform. G'day everyone, and it's Darren with the SOARcast, and we have a new format today. I'm joined by Neil Prentice, SOAR's COO. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the SOARcast, I just want to welcome welcome Neil. Neil, it's good to have you with us. Thanks, Darren. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, my role at SOAR is to manage a lot of the day-to-day -day operational issues and <laughs> operate and do a lot of the work with our corporate uh, partners and uh, major clients and have a general supporting role uh, Amir, our CEO. Yeah, thanks, Neil. And I think what he was trying to say was that he basically does everything. So it's good to have <laughs> no, Neil with us today. No, I'm just responsible for everything. <laughs> <laughs> And as the saying goes, it all goes downhill. It is good to have Sebastian Robertson joining us today. Sebastian Robertson is with a company called Birdie based out of Sydney, uh, Australia. Sebastian, it's good to have you on the program today. Darren, thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, really exciting to be on, on the SOARcast and, and alongside Neil, of course, as well from, from your team too. Well, very good. Sebastian, we're going to get right into it. Can you tell us what Birdie is and what you do? Yeah, so I, I guess um, if I take a step back, Birdie is essentially what we're trying to do is change the way people view data, but from a spatial perspective, essentially from above. We want to build a platform uh, that facilitates opportunities for drone pilots, and then at that central platform also helps facilitate the data for enterprises. So what we like to say is we want to be the platform to the skies. So Birdie is a drone management platform solution. Well, very good. Now, if I was to guess, I would I would assume that you've been flying drones since you were uh, in your in your uh, you first started wearing big boy pants. But actually, you have quite an in interesting CV because you have things like finance, renewable energy, mental health services, charities, energy trading. I'm sure the list goes on. Tell us how you got into drones. Yeah, it's a uh, it is a colorful um, CV. Uh, I can put it that way, and and I think all those experiences culminate to just a love of business and new technologies and, and directions and big challenges that society faces. So that's always been a driver for me of where can I apply my skills on a big societal issue or opportunity. And I think mental health is is one of the big challenges we'll face, but I think one of the biggest opportunities we'll have is how will drones integrate and change society looking forward. Now I'd love to pretend that I got into drones from that. Uh, you know, altruistic purpose. But the truth is my brother and I love touch football and been obsessed about touch football for, for a long time. And he was over in New York uh, coaching a team, teaching Americans how to play touch football. And so when you're playing sport, one of the most the most interesting ways to learn about where you are on the on the field is from above. It gives you that perspective, that spatial awareness. And so drones provided us this tool about five years ago that enabled us to provide that insight to players when you're coaching. And so he called me up and said, you've got to get on this technology. And so we, we used it for touch football. And then we also have a background in energy and realized uh, in renewable energy and noticed 
one of the big challenges in the solar space was looking at efficiencies of solar panels. Then we realized you could do thermal. And, and I guess from there, it just snowballed into how many industries are going to be affected by this technology. And we saw a great opportunity to play a pivotal role in that. Yeah, well, quick question for you. Back, as you said, five years ago, what were you flying? Oh, mate, it was it, everything was semi off the shelf. Uh, it was it was almost a, I think it would have been a Phantom Two, maybe the first one of those early editions. It certainly um, required a few a bit more skill than the than the drones being uh, issued today at the time. So there were some early incidences that are off the record. Uh, but no, they're, they're, it was pretty early on, and I think. The technology in the past five years has just evolved rapidly uh, that enables a lot more people to get access to this, which is exciting for us and something that we want to help facilitate is more people flying these this piece of technology. Great. That's really interesting. So you're talking about drone pilots there. And uh, so what sort of people as drone pilots do you see coming up to your system? We, we've got... Um, I guess we have a network of drone operators and for context, there's now about over 2,000 within the Australian network and we'll, we'll look to expand that uh, globally in due course. Nothing like a bit of um, global expansion for any tech company. But for now, we're really focused here in the Australian market. We, we have a range of, I guess, operators uh, across the board. So they, they vary from people and businesses that have more years experience than I've got in this industry. So you're talking five, six to 10 years knowledge in, in drone technology across the board. So you've got those with incredible backgrounds and qualifications and have come from the manned aircraft space. But we also have a large portion of people who are entering the industry for the first time. And I think this is one of the exciting things about this field is that it's an emerging space. And, and if you look at projections and new job opportunities, I think a lot more people will be picking up this skill set looking forward. And one of the, I guess, benefits we have is being able to educate and train people up along the way. We're not a training organisation, just to put that disclosure out there. Uh, but what we do is find those that are coming in and work with them of what technology they have access to, what qualifications they have, where are they located, and see if we can help them find work within their region. Mm. So if I just bought a drone, what would I need to do, need to do before I was a good uh, pilot, a, a candidate for birdie? Well, there, there are a couple of things. So one is experience speaks volumes. So it's one thing to own a drone. It's another thing to know how to fly it. So the first thing I'd do is get out there and fly for the love of it. Uh, get to know the technology, know what you do, track your hours, document it all, try different types of outputs. So it's one thing to fly a drone, but one of the things that we always focus on, the drone is the solution that a business is looking for. And we only want to deal with those that are looking to commercialize and do this as, as a job. So recreational users yes there's facilitations and benefits to the platform but our primary focus is those who want to commercialize uh, that as a job opportunity so one of the big things we always try to focus on is it's not the drone that matters it's the data that you're capturing so you know you've got to be really smart about learning what type of data sets you can do practice doing models and 3d models or 2d maps and the more you practice the more experience you get uh, and the better that knowledge becomes of value so so first of all great to have a drone in your hand Second is look at what type of work you want. We always push for the more qualifications you have, the better. So you can get your, in Australia, the remote pilot's license is the next iteration up beyond a sub two kilo category from a, from a legal perspective. Uh, and so we always think the more professional you are about it, the, the better. Um, and that's where we'd kind of push you towards. We prioritize those with higher qualifications just from a governance um, and compliance perspective. 
but it doesn't exclude other people. So if you knew a lot of people are starting from scratch and so the best thing you can do is create an account and get just get going. Great. So as a pilot, if I'm coming on to Birdie, I register and put in all my details. Um, do you keep a track of the equipment on, on putting on there? We do, we do, and that and that's really important for us for, for a few reasons. One is uh, the the equipment that you have will give us a frame of work of what type of work you can do. So, for example, you might have a standard Mavic Two, so we know you can do some mapping, some three D modeling, some other basic photogrammetry things. But you might also have a thermal camera, and so if you've got a thermal capability with an Inspire or, or some other very you know model that has that technology we want to know that so that if there's a thermal job we can offload that work to you as well so that equipment the qualifications that you have the equipment that you have your experience you have there's an onboarding process and you can always update your profile that's really important that you fill that out with as much detail as possible Sebastian, I want to step back a little bit uh, and give our listeners a bit of the, the framework about what we're talking about. So, uh, for example, I'm a drone guy. I want to know what I want to know what Birdie is. How do I find out about it? And then once I get there, what do I see? What am I doing? Yes. Yeah, so, I guess the the first concept is Birdie is equipping the ecosystem of drones as a broad concept which plugs into what we call the aerial intelligence. Aerial intelligence is uh, essentially about getting insights from above as a broad sense. So there's there's drones, there's manned aircraft, there's satellite. All of these create what we call layers uh, or tiers. And what the benefit of drones is what we say is it's um, always going to be generally a much higher resolution. You can get closer to the object that you're trying to inspect or, or take insights of. Uh, and also, we love the fact that we can get a distributed network. So the more localised you are, the faster you can do that capture, the faster you can get that inside turnaround. So I guess the, the first thing that we kind of try to do is take a bit of a step back and say, why are drones important in the first instance? So yes, you might love the drones and the flying, but generally what they're trying to do is look at, you know, analytics and insights. Then you've got the data management and how do you access and manage that data. Then you kind of want to look at scale and standardization of, of um, what you're trying to capture. And the other component that is really interesting from a commercial perspective is there's an ongoing shift in the regulatory framework around how people can fly. So there's a lot of evolving pieces in the drone space. So when it comes to Birdie and what we do, you know, you can jump onto our website, it's birdiebirdi.com.au. You can uh, look at some of the case studies and, and our blogs of what we've been up to from a practical sense, which I'm sure we'll cover later on. But um, then you can create an account. You can create an account. You can start to store imagery, look at different capabilities. You can look at maps, create your profile from a um, pilot perspective. Uh, and, and I guess that's that's the kind of crux of it. I'm not sure, Darren, if that addressed completely your question. I think I think you did. I think you gave us a, a good picture. In fact, you touched on things that um, I guess were things that I hadn't I hadn't thought of. And and you make a good point about um, there's a lot of drones. There's a lot of guys that can fly drones. There's a smaller amount of guys that are uh, qualified and and certified. Um, and 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 I I think what Birdie is 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 essentially doing is allowing uh, let's say end users, which is 
tailing into my next question, end users, the client effectively to filter down and to understand the, the qualifications and get uh, an understanding and, and feel that, um, in fact, they're going for the best qualified uh, drone pilot. So let's say I'm a, a, a landowner, a business owner, something to that effect. And I want to know what Birdie can do for me. Um, I need I need aerial imagery. Perhaps I need uh, assessment on my uh, solar panels or or something like that. Um, maybe you can maybe you can detail the types of things that the client, the people who aren't flying the drones but need work done. How does Birdie serve them? Yeah, and I think this is this is the this is the part we love, and I think we play a unique role, and I think there are some other players in it too that really look at. What does the end customer really want? And then how to use drones to get them the solution for the problem they're trying to address. So we always think of it as there's two sides. There's the enterprise or the customer side, and then there's the pilot and the, the skill set um, and resources to uh, solve, that, solve that problem. So from an enterprise uh, aspect, I guess the easy ways that, that I'd frame it is we provide a national network of pilots, a distributed network is what we refer to it as. And what that enables is efficient, standardized, scalable aerial data capture. So, uh, by doing that, we're essentially providing a workflow that can manage your drones into your enterprise operations. So if I get more into an example, because I think examples are the best way to look at this. You know, we, we deal with some clients in the uh, natural resources space in the mining and resource industry and they might be looking at volumetrics so how much how much stock do they have in a pile across their sites now there's many ways that they can do that the traditional model is you walk along the ground with a ruler you measure the width and then the length and then you kind of do a calculation on a spreadsheet to work out roughly how much you have the benefits of drones is that you can fly that over you can turn that into a set map you can turn it into a 3D model. That 3D model again then can give you a much more accurate calculation of the exact volume in that stockpile. And so in that instance, the customer or the client or the enterprise really only cares about the volume of stockpile in that, in that um, resource. Now, how we capture it to them is both interesting and, and useful, but they want to make sure it's done in a safe and efficient and effective manner. And that's what we do. So we take away that problem and then we, we work with the network of operators that we have to standardize the capture, to get that data, to visualize it, and then turn it into a volumetric report for them. So that's like one example in resources. We also work in the insurance industry. So the insurance industry, you know, a lot of claims have something to do with roof damage post a natural disaster. So post, if you think recently up in Queensland, there was a huge hail damage. We have coastal erosion. We had bushfires in Australia. I think these, these are natural effects that are across the world. They're not exclusive to Australia, unfortunately. Uh, but what that does is drones can provide a really quick, safe way to make an assessment of the damage to a property. And so that resolution, that capture is really important for a, a, an assessor within an insurance company to make that assessment. Now, that assessor doesn't necessarily need to fly the drone. They might want quick, rapid turnaround. And we can get an operator that's, you know, five minutes away from that site to put their drone up to capture that data. And so the assessor that might be in, say, Perth, where you guys are, making an assessment on a house in Sydney where I am, and you can do that on the spot. And that turnaround time becomes 12 hours in total. Now, the reason why that's important, Darren, is from an insurer perspective, is they want to process the claim as fast as possible so that their customers get a good experience and get that certainty during a really tough time for them as an individual when the house is damaged. 
And I think we provide a facilitation for that. So we get them access to the insights that they can in a faster manner. Well, very good. I, I have some questions about uh, data, um, data delivery and the products that um, drone drone operators are providing for the clients. And I, fair, I, I, I wonder if there's a bit of um, standardization. So as you mentioned, you've been, um, you know, hands on, the, hands on the sticks literally for uh, quite a few years. Um, it, are, are things looking up in terms of data consistency and, and what people are delivering and, and the expectations from clients, or is it still a bit, a bit up in the air? Uh, I'd say it's evolving. I think it's <laughs> definitely heading in the right direction. Uh, there's a learning curve both on the client side and on the pilot side. And I think sometimes on the pilot side, we overestimate our value and our contribution that we can have. And I think sometimes we complicate what is a simple question from a client. And on the client side, often what happens is they just they ask for something without necessarily understanding the context of what they're actually trying to solve. So they ask for the highest resolution but the highest resolution isn't necessarily the solution. So, you know, I can give you broad examples that, you know, you might want to look at an entire suburb of number of houses in that suburb. Now, you don't need a drone to do that. You, you might just need satellite imagery, and that can tell you how many houses are in a suburb. But if you're an insurance assessor and you want to look at the uh, damage of uh, hail on that roof, you need drones to get the resolution to make that assessment. So I think we're moving in the right direction. And so when it comes to the standardization of the data capture, what we're starting to see is because we've got experience across industries, we're able to take the learning from one customer and apply it universally within the industry, which is a really good value add to future clients of ours. But what we can start to do is look to standardize what type of output do they actually want. And once you understand that, then you can start to standardize the flight requirements that a pilot is doing on field as well. So there, there's a bit of a, um, as I said, I'd say it's evolving and we're certainly not the only ones trying to help address this, this gap, but optimistically, I think we're definitely heading in the right direction. Well, very good. I think that uh, speaks to a lot of the challenges that we've had um, at SOAR and, and through our parent company, um, Building mobile mapping applications, it's often very difficult to um, to share these high resolution data sets in common formats and to make use of them uh, immediately. It's often the, the fact that I guess drone dronies oversample or or create these very large data sets over as you mentioned over over uh, com complexifying the the issues. Hmm. So one of the things we've done at Store is is built um, data visualization and data sharing utilities that uh, support this. So hence we're going to segue into a message from our sponsors about the uh, the avail the services that are available from Store. How often do you think the images on Google Earth are updated? What if there was a website that could give you access to near real-time satellite imagery for almost any location on Earth, updated daily? Meet SOAR, the future of all maps and imagery. Start exploring today, soar.earth. So welcome back, everyone, to the Thorcast, and thanks for the message from our sponsors. I'm going to hand over to Neil, and Neil's going to lead the discussion for the next part of the Thorcast. Thanks, Neil. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Darren. And uh, Sebastian, you, just before we took a break, uh, 
you've mentioned you've done stuff for insurance and uh, uh, resources, etc. cetera. Um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the exciting, obscure, unconventional projects that Birdie's done? Uh, obviously, uh, not, not giving away any secrets, but things that have, you thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, great question. I think, you know, this is always the exciting part about this space for me. This, the, the applications of where drones are being used is um, always evolving and, and every day you kind of get hit with a new, a new one. And so I'll give you two, two quick examples if I can. The first one is in search and rescue. Now, I think we hear about this all the time and I think we know that it's coming. How it's going to happen is, is going to be, uh, you know, one of the more nuanced parts about it. But I wanted to share a practical example. I think that we have an incredible network of drone operators that would happily be more involved in search and rescue. And so we have this community feel of really good people wanting to use technology to help, but we don't know how to activate it. And the other day, just up the, the road from where I am, um, a couple of beaches up on the northern beaches in, in Sydney, there was a old woman went missing uh, in one of the scrublands just off the beach. And the police went down, there were police and ambulance on site, and they were hunting for this woman and they couldn't find her for a few hours. And one of the police spotted a, a drone pilot flying recreationally up the road went up to this pilot and said, hey, is there any chance you might come down and help fly over and look for this person? And so the pilot was like, yeah, of course. So went down, flew over. The drone pilot found the, this woman in, in under two minutes. And in that time frame, it allowed the police to go out, the ambulance to go there, to get that woman into the ambulance and take her to hospital and, and everything worked really well and she was, she was fine. And I think that is a great example of how this technology will change the way we experience day-to-day -day activities. And I think for me, I look at that use case and I go, it is un it is an amazing story, but it's, for me, I look and go, it was by chance. It was by chance a pilot happened to be there. It was by chance the pilot, sh the police showed the initiative to go and ask and help out. Uh, and I think we should be curating these experiences more and fostering them. So I think there's a lot that will happen in search and rescue. I mean, I was involved in one myself uh, only the week before that happened. So this has all been in the space of the past two and a half weeks where, uh, and I'll be honest, one of my mother-in-law's, uh, one of her six dogs went missing and, and she backed to uh, national bushland in Australia, in Sydney. Uh, and so I took out the thermal and, and flew it over there uh, trying to help identify. Now, it's not as good an ending as the story I just told you. Um, the dog ended up wandering home and was at the home front door when we got back. Uh, but it's a good <laughs> example of where we can try and use this type of technology to improve what happens. So that, that's search and rescue for me is a, a big one. Um, the other use case that I do find really interesting is, you know, in off the back of COVID, I've been hit up by large, large enterprises and government agencies looking at how they can police, so to speak, or police is probably a bad word, how do they monitor uh, social distancing? And, and there's an incredible way that we can look at the technology of an aerial live stream capability that can look at the distance between people without identifying. So you can de-identify the person, but you can look at the distancing and kind of use that tool in a really benef beneficial way. Now, are we always going to be in an environment like this or is that just opportunistic because of COVID? I'm not sure, but I think that we are quickly moving to technology to help address problems. And that, that's what excites me the most. So. We always see drones as just a tool to help address problems. What those problems will be looking forward, I'm not sure, but I think that's why I love the industry. 
Great. Um, I suppose that's part of the evolutionary process of the uh, drone industry overall, but obviously it's having impact on other industries. Other industries are having an impact on it. And uh, in relation to that, probably the biggest impact is the regulatory. We'd love to hear what you think of how the regulatory environment is evolving in Australia and worldwide and how that's impacting drone pilots and the birding business. So the regulatory framework is uh, a complicated part of a great piece of technology. And I think what we need to be as an industry is disciplined that safety still has to be our priority. And that's because we're coming at it from a manned aircraft perspective, we have to ensure that we can show safe operations. And I think the more and more we do that as an ecosystem, as an industry, the more and more the regulatory framework will adjust to allow us to address a, a bigger market opportunity as well. So I think there's an evolution, as you touch on, that will come in the regulatory framework. I think, in my observation, I've been in different industries, I actually think Catherine Australia does a really good job in this space. I think it's a challenging... Um, I don't think a regulator's job is to be the innovator. I think their job is to create a safe framework that allows people to innovate within, but it's got to be within a strong framework that is accepted by society. And I think drones are challenging different elements beyond aviation. So I'll, let me try and be more practical. So I think the, the aviation rules beyond visual line of sight, you know, I think these kind of, you know, um, you know, fly during daytime so you, you can see the drone. I think the 30-metre people, I think all those will naturally evolve over time. I think where we're getting into more complicated regulation is more around noise and, you know, uh, privacy issues and aspects like that that the drone ecosystem doesn't necessarily fully comprehend and no one really understands where that ownership sits yet. And so the aviation industry says it's not our responsibility, but then who does have privacy rights above your house? So I can fly a helicopter above your house and you won't care too much because you're probably going to assume that it's okay. But because drones are so accessible, there's now a broader question around privacy and how we do that. So I think from a discipline to keep moving the industry forward, we have to be focused on being as clear and transparent about what we're doing when we're asked by the general population as much as it is about helping to form a regulatory framework that allows us to innovate. Mm. That's really interesting because obviously uh, beyond visual line of sight, there's issues around traffic management and uh, the, I believe CAS has just recently introduced the requirements of register every new drone, uh, whether recreational or otherwise. Is, uh, can can yeah. you tell us well, a little bit so, more about so, that? Um, Australia recently introduced the aspect that you have to register your drone. So. This isn't unique, it's happening in the States, it's gonna happen in Europe, it will kind of become the discipline. Aviation is an industry industry where once it happens in one country, best practice is kind of adopted globally, which is really great uh, in some measures, but you can know what's coming. So the question is why and what's the purpose of it? And I think this is where the industry gets split in two. So there are a lot of users that are using drones for recreational purpose, and they don't think it's their job to register a drone uh, for flying at a local park, right? And, and that's the kind of split. Whereas those commercially don't mind, you know, you see it like it's only in car, we own a car, you, you register your car, you pay what you need to so you can run a business. As long as that's reasonable and, and justified, then, then I think it's kind of 
Um, it is what it is and it's a fact of a business operation. We're just in an unusual place where you're trying to create one set of rules that apply to both recreational and commercial and the divide is splitting the industry up. And I think that divide is what's holding the industry back a little bit around creating efficient rules across the board. So I think people are testing it out and one of the mm. hardest parts is one thing to have regulations and enforce, um, you know, registration and what have you, but it's another thing to police it and implement it. And I think that's the big challenge currently for CASA is how do they get better at policing it? Because there are people that can comply with everything they need to and, and follow it by the rules. And then there's your, your more kind of um, cowboy operator that does it for a quick job and it's a quick $50 job. And so I think there's a real divide that there's um, who who's going to come out on top in this industry. And I hope those that comply and follow the rules that are looked after in, in, in the future of the ecosystem. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. Now, moving back to a little bit about the uh, Verdi platform itself, um, uh, we were talking earlier before and we we really love the Verdi interface and feel. You know, it's one of those really nice websites to use. Um, do you have an app design philosophy, a, a design philosophy behind uh, the the booty site? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question, and because I'm not necessarily technically or or, or um, trained in a design perspective, I think my philosophy and the team's philosophy is that aerial insights should be accessible to everyone. And so to make it accessible to everyone, it has to be intuitive to a brand new user, just as much as it is to a user that's been on the platform for three, four years. And so I think in that aspect, you've got to create a platform that is accessible to a surveyor that's been doing surveying for decades, just as much as it is to a you know 16 year old looking for their first job. Uh, and so I think sometimes me not being technical is a real value add to our team because I can just ask questions be like, it doesn't make sense. And I think that common sense approach is really useful when designing, uh, you know, applications like we are because it does make it, uh, in a principal sense, simpler. And, and simple is a good thing. Complexity isn't necessarily what people are after. Right. Thanks. Thanks for the insight on uh, app design and, and philosophy, uh, Sebastian. We had a lot of questions. We didn't get all of to all of the serious ones, but this is a fun part of the Sorecast where we get to the not so serious questions. And we're actually doing something different. This is drone trivia, one on uh, one on one drone trivia. So this is heads up drone trivia. Sebastian versus Neil. This will be good. How we're going to do this? I have a series of Q and A. What I'll do is I'll ask the question, list the answers, and whoever wants to answer that question first says their name and gets the chance to answer the question. Note that most of these questions are from the U.S. They're U.S. based, and we want to advise that. Uh, while we fly drones, we're not experts on uh, regulation in the United States. So if there is any uncertainty, uncertainty or users want to know uh, more, our listeners want to know more clarification about those points, we suggest that you consult the FAA on those points. Uh, needless to say, this is all for fun. Let's get started. Good First question. There, Darren, I thought you were trying to stitch me up here on the regulations. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to taking down Neil here. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> all good question one what are rtf drones a b or c are they a hobbyist drones b 
military drones or C, commercial drones? RT, sorry, RTFB? Yes, RT, RTF. Oh, RTF. Romeo Tango Foxtrot. Neil. Neil? Commercial. I believe the hint is are they either, well, they're hobbyists, hobbyist drones. Hobbyist drones. Okay. okay. Question two. In what year did the United States first deploy an armed drone? Was it A, I'll just read the answers, 1999, 2001, or 2004? Sebastian. 91? It was actually 2001. Oh. Imagine that. I would have I made the same guess. Question three, which segment of the American society is opposed to the use of word drone? Is it hobbyists, regulators, or consumers? Neil, regulators. Correct. It's too generic. <laughs> it's not technical enough. It is. That is Although I will make a disclaimer here that they are slowly moving to using it in uh, educational purposes because they realize the UAV... Uh, language isn't connecting with the um, consumers. <laughs> okay, next question. In 2014, entrepreneurs in Minnesota were grounded by the FAA after using drones to deliver what product to fishermen at a local lake? Was it beer, cheese, or worms? Neil. Smashed beer. Oh, it's be beer. Come on. It's got to be beer. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I should. Can I give you some, an anecdotal story here quickly, Darren? If you want, to know. Oh, please do. The, um, there was a. I was laughing about this. They were looking at uh, objects being dropped into prisons, both in the, in the states, and there was an issue in Australia. And the, and I was um, laughing slightly internally, probably inappropriate, but uh, in the states they dropped off um, a, a weapon, a former gun. And in Australia, they dropped off recreational drugs. And I was like, I love the difference in one's trying to have a really good fun time, the other the other country's trying to protect themselves. And I was like, there's a difference in culture at that point. I, I think you're right. Uh, well, you know, we, 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 that's a mind I don't understand. But moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. True or false? Drones are banned in U.S. national parks. Sebastian, true. Yes. Next question. What are UCAVs? Unicorn, yeah. sorry, what's C? C in uh, radio language, Charlie, oh, uh, sorry. Uniform, uniform, Charlie, Alpha uniform Charlie, Alpha Victor. What are Uniform Charlie, Alpha Victors? Neil, unmanned combat aerial vehicles. Correct. Well, that's impressive, Neil. I, 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 I regularly, uh, you know, read, read a few newsletters that come through and I use that kind of pen. It's clear of defence, so that's my uh, defence in that and not answering. Fair enough. <laughs> As of 2016... The FAA limits consumer drones to what maximum altitude? 200 feet, 400 feet, or 600 feet? Sebastian, 400. Bing, ding, ding, ding. Very good. Also in Australia, 
roughly the same altitude, it's 120 meters. Next question, before 2016, the, it's the same question. Oh, I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been keeping score? I think Dan's, oh, Dan, the drone father oh. sitting over here, our um, producer is keeping score. No pressure, guys. Ah, what sort of drone was used in the first ever UCAV strike in the war in Afghanistan? Neil. Uh, Predator. I'm going to say yes. I didn't get the answer. My, um, oh, sorry. My interactive, um, <clears throat> interactive website is not interactive. Let's move on. <laughs> I think he's right. <laughs> well, if anyone knows uh, if I'm wrong, please let us know. Right in. Aaron will chastise me. I must have timed out. They, they probably want me to pay for this quiz. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to move on to the fun questions. What is the top speed of the MQ-1 Predator? Is it 320 miles per hour, 135 miles per hour, or 210 miles per hour? Oh. I'm trying to do the conversion in my head to kilometers. I'm like, uh, 1.6. Now it's math. So what were the three? Yeah, 320 miles per hour. 135 miles per hour or 210 miles per hour? Sebastian, my gut says 210. Like I said, we've gone interactive, so I think we're going to <laughs> – there's no way to, to finish this correct. question. Sebastian. Honest and un <laughs> correct, Sebastian. There is no way to finish this, much like the U.S. election. There's no way to finish this quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to dispute this report anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> no, com for once I have no comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sebastian, it has been really good having you. I'm sorry about timing out on the Q and A. Uh, we all had a lot of fun with that, but um, as as anything, you're limited by time or. Uh, by your credit card. And in this case, we don't have one handy. So Sebastian, um, it's great. It's been great hearing about Birdie. Again, if anybody wants to find out about Birdie, in, you're based in Australia, you're a drone pilot, you want to know more about it, it's www.birdie.com.au and um, have a crack at it. And it's been great. Once again, it's been great having both Neil and Sebastian on this, on this podcast. Thanks, if Mike. you want to know more about SOAR, you can also jump on SOAR at, uh, of course, www.soar.earth. And once again, thanks a lot, Sebastian. No problem. And uh, just a final word from our producer. He's let us know, Sebastian, we drew 4-4. Four, four. Ah, a diplomatic answer. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being on. I really appreciate being on SOARcast. Great opportunity. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. And we'd love to have you back in state. And that's all we have time for today. Tune in to our next SOARcast for more discussion on geospatial products found on SOAR.
So what is Soar Plus? Well, imagine if Google Earth and Dropbox had a baby. Soar Plus is the premier solution that allows users to store, view and share maps and imagery on one simple mapping platform. Think of Soar Plus as your own digital atlas. Find out more by visiting us at soar.earth.